Hello, this is Dr. Paul Sachs, and I am the Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And as a reminder, that's OFID, not OFID. And this is the OFID podcast. Today, a big treat. We welcome back ID and HIV specialist extraordinaire and good friend, Dr. Raphael Arafi Landowitz. He's an associate professor of medicine at UCLA School of Medicine, who in his spare time is a spin class instructor. Rafi, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me back, Paul. And I just need to make you aware that spinning is a registered trademark. We can't say that anymore. Uh, it's actually just indoor cycling. Okay. <laughs> Apologies. Maybe we'll have that edited out. Well, as <laughs> usual, we're going to put Rafi to work because we've asked him today to pick his top five most important, most favorite research papers in HIV medicine. And I'm going to do the same. And because he has spent all this time preparing when he could have been doing other things, such as indoor indoor cycling, cycling, uh, he is going to choose first. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity to choose first. And I hate to be predictable, but I'm going to pick the HPTN 052 study results. And that was, of course, Cohen et al., New England Journal of Medicine, 2011, the seminal study that once and for all in a randomized prospective clinical trial demonstrated the preventive efficacy of treatment uh, for HIV-infected individuals. That study enrolled heterosexual couples that were serodiscordant, and it was only later observational data that went on to support the uh, generalization of that observation to MSM couples. That was transformative. It kicked off the U equals U movement, of course, that now has destigmatized HIV infection to millions of people uh, living with and affected by HIV. And I dare you, Paul Sachs, <laughs> to find a more impactful HIV study. Well, that was a really good choice, Rafi, and not surprisingly, it was on my list too, so I'll cross that off. Um, I think a few things about that study, if, you, if I can make a couple of comments. Please do. Yeah, one is, think about how ambitious that study was. I mean, they had to find these serodiscordant couples and then actually give them informed consent on this question of whether the person with HIV should go on treatment or not. It seems impossible right now, but at the time there was this open question, and these people with HIV were asymptomatic, so you know it wasn't proven that they would benefit themselves from HIV treatment. So that's one. And second is a little known fact. Uh, the study was actually done in collaboration with the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. HBTN is another trials network, and the two networks work together to get this accomplished, and I don't think the ACDG gets enough credit. So I just wanted to bring up that point. Well, thanks for bringing that up, Paul. And and I'm going to have a little bit of egg on my face because actually my boss <laughs> is the network PI for the ACTG. Oh, and, stop. And she's going to be angry at me that I didn't bring that up and that you had to. Yeah, well, anyway, excellent choice. I am going to be a bit of a medical historian here. And I'm going to start with the paper uh, Pneumocystis Pneumonia Los Angeles, MMWR, June 5th, 1981. It was actually the first report of what we now know as HIV disease or AIDS, and it was a description of five gay men in Los Angeles who had pneumocystis pneumonia and mucosal candidiasis, with two of them dying by the time this report was published. To read it today is kind of chilling. It said, all the above observations suggest the possibility of a cellular immune dysfunction related to a common exposure that predisposes individuals to opportunistic infections. 
wow, you know, if you can talk about prescient, they really did uh, call it there. Now, it's also fascinating to know that the lead article in that issue of MMWR, dengue type 4 infection in U.S. travelers to the Caribbean, which is amazing that that was on the front page and not this report of this new entity. And there's a story behind that that's really fascinating. And it's in the book and the band played on. It turns out the CDC was kind of skittish about putting something that involved gay men on the front page of the MMWR. And they neither wanted to offend the gay community, which they'd been working with extensively on STIs and the hepatitis B vaccine, or offend the people who were squeamish about anything related to MSM, men have sex with men, and so they put it on page two. It was a very, very intentional thing to do. Uh, in hindsight, it's ridiculous, of course, because dengue in the Caribbean is pretty common, and AIDS turned out to be this massive pandemic. But you know what? When they reprint it for a historical standpoint, they always put it on page one. So that's my first choice. Well, I also find it fascinating that anyone thinks that anyone attributes any level of importance to page one versus page two of the <laughs> MMWR. I mean, after all, this isn't the New York Daily News, Paul. <laughs> No, it's not. But back in the day before online journals, every week people practicing uh, medicine at the time, especially infectious diseases, when they read this, many of them knew something weird was going on. And in fact, several people in hindsight had seen cases of HIV before that. They just didn't recognize it. Rafi, let's move on to your choice number two. Okay. I'm going to try to not be predictable <laughs> with my second choice. So I'm going to go with the ACTG 5095 study. Oh, interesting choice. Uh, A little controversial. I, I'm trying to imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, Trip Gulick and the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004 and the 5095 study team. And I was a trainee at the time, and I remember this paramount question of what constituted highly active antiretroviral therapy ooh, or heart. Ooh, ugh. Pet peeve alert. I know, Paul. Paul <laughs> hates that term. Uh, he, he relegates it to people on the West Coast, and, and we should just call it antiretroviral therapy or combination antiretroviral therapy, CART or ART. But at the time, HART as a term was in vogue, so I'm going to use it. Um, but the, the question of, of what constituted heart, and Paul just cringed in case anyone is trying to envision what this conversation is looking like as you listen to it, we knew that it was two nucleoside analog reverse transcriptase inhibitors and a protease inhibitor, and it had been expanded to two nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors and a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, to favorens at the time. But the question was, could you use three agents from the same class that all target reverse transcriptase through the same mechanism? And the study was comparing AZT with 3TC and a bacavir to AZT with 3TC and a favorens to to a third arm of AZT, 3TC, Abacavir, and Efavirenz. And of course, the, the four-drug arm was stopped early for excess toxicity. And then the final comparison between the two three-drug regimens showed that indeed the Efavirenz regimen was superior for reasons of virologic failure and tolerability. I think it put to rest this notion of should we be using as combination antiretroviral therapy three drugs from the same class? And people were disappointed, but some, like you, I remember, were not surprised by this <laughs> result when no. it happened. No, I wasn't. And Rafi, it's an interesting choice. And since 
uh, in the pair of us here, I'm the treatment expert and you're the prevention expert. I'm going to play the role of your senior and much more experienced mentor and make corrections to your summary. Please do. <laughs> well, the real primary finding was the excess virologic failure in the nucleoside-only arm. And it turns out that the, the triple nucleoside plus a Favrin's arm, it, it ended up not being any better. So another important finding there was if three drugs are good, four drugs must be better, turned out to be wrong. Anyway, interesting choice. It wouldn't be the choice that I would make, but anyway, that's why we have these drafts. Freedom of choice. <laughs> Paul doesn't like that choice. <laughs> Am I allowed to go on to my second choice Sure. Now? <laughs> All right. I'm going to continue to play the medical historian here and choose a paper that was in science in 1983, Francois Barre-Sunossier, uh, which I mispronounced her last name because I do not speak French, and her paper, Isolation of a T-Lymphotropic Retrovirus from a Patient at Risk for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS. And this was the first time a laboratory had isolated the virus that causes HIV and AIDS. And, you know, before that, it had all been hypothesis. They've had a 33-year-old man who had what we called AIDS-related complex, which was basically lymphadenopathy and night sweats, but no actual symptoms of AIDS yet. And they were able to culture this virus in their laboratory and then pass it on to other T cells. Uh, which, of course, T-cell deficiency was already described as the hallmark of AIDS. And you know what? That was so important that they later won the Nobel Prize. And we, of course, know that Robert Gallo here in the United States repeated the experiment, not knowing he was repeating the experiment from a larger group of individuals with AIDS. Uh, they both thought they had found the virus. It turns out the viruses were identical. Without that discovery, where would we be? When I started medical school, no one knew what caused this syndrome. It was actually mentioned in a lecture to us during my first year of medical school that cytomegalovirus was the cause of this syndrome, which, quick point, it isn't. Uh, and <laughs> anyway. So, Paul, I find it fascinating that you are focusing on a lot of discovery-based papers and not a lot of clinical trials. You're going through a progression here of sort of discovery and innovation that was the foundation of HIV medicine. Perhaps you are right. I've done two now, and now you're going to move on to your choice number three. Okay, I'm going to return to my strong suit here. <laughs> you better, because your last choice was kind of wacky. Wacky? I don't think it was wacky. I do. Um, right. Okay, we're going to agree to disagree about that. Oh, yeah, just back to that wacky choice for a moment. I should say that you, know, you already mentioned your boss. I'll mention my boss. The senior author of ACDG 5095 was Dan Karitskis. There. There you go. We put in pitches for both our bosses. Now we can stop this podcast. Dan, Just you, you owe Paul royalties okay, now. good. I'm going to return to the prevention space and choose the IPREX study. Ah, not a uh, surprise. Bob Grant, <laughs> New England Journal of Medicine, 2010. This paper sort of stood the world on its ear. It was the first efficacy study to demonstrate positive finding for pre-exposure prophylaxis. The study took 2,499 MSM and trans women. Now that's very important, Paul. It is not 2,500 study participants. It's 2,499. <laughs> that's critical yes. in understanding the, the, the findings of the paper. Well, the sample size calculation obviously made it to 2,499. <laughs> and randomized them in a double-blind placebo-controlled study design to either active TDF-FTC tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate uh, with emtricitabine in a single tablet fixed dose formulation or a matching 
placebo to be administered daily and participants were tested for HIV and found to be uninfected by routine assays at screening and at study entry and were then followed with monthly HIV testing. They were, of course, provided condoms and education about adherence and safer sex and STI testing and safety monitoring. And of course, the primary result was 44% reduction in HIV incidence in those who received the active intervention compared to the placebo intervention, and it stood the world on its ear because it was a statistically significant result, and yet it was a woefully disappointing point estimate. It was only with biomarkers of adherence analysis that we came to understand that if someone doesn't take a therapy, it doesn't work for them. At least it has no toxicity. <laughs> and when subset analyses post hoc were done, greater than 90% reductions in HIV incidents were found for those who were even relatively adherent to the daily intervention. Our understanding of adherence and protection in rectal and later vaginal compartments evolved significantly mm -hmm. uh, with subsequent studies. But this study really opened the door that this was a potentially viable and incredibly powerful HIV prevention strategy. No, I totally agree, and it's a great choice. One thing that is also interesting from a historical perspective, but at the 2002 conference on retroviruses and opportunistic infections, Bill Gates was the keynote speaker. And he stands up and he's talking about how to solve the problem of HIV globally. Two notable things about that. One is that he did not use PowerPoint, which I thought was interesting for the founder of Microsoft not to use PowerPoint. And the second, someone stood up in the audience and said to him, what do you think about using antiretroviral drugs as prevention for people who are not infected? And you know what he said? He said, wouldn't a condom work? <laughs> Yes, and, and of course, the chief challenge with that is if people liked condoms, we wouldn't have upwards of 40,000 new HIV infections right. in the United States. Okay, so I am now going to choose a treatment study, and this one is going to be the second appearance of our good friend, Dr. Trip Gulick. And this is treatment with indinavir, zidovidine, and lamivudine in adults with HIV infection and prior antiretroviral therapy, New England Journal of Medicine, 1997. Now, this is the first time that a study demonstrated that triple therapy for HIV could not only achieve virologic suppression, but could maintain it. Now, it was only 100 patients, but when uh, Tripp presented these data at Croy in 1996, and then later that year in Vancouver, when you saw the patients who had triple therapy and their viral load stayed suppressed, you kind of had this glimmer that maybe this combination antiretroviral therapy stuff would not wear off. Because if you could maintain viral suppression at low enough levels, then you would not evolve resistance. And all of the problems with ART before that had to do with the virus eventually growing through and developing resistance mutations and rebounding, et cetera. So even though it was a kind of proof of principle study, and even though it was a small study, it really uh, sort of set the stage for all of our subsequent studies. As a result, we now know that when someone starts antiretroviral therapy and achieves viral suppression 
and has decent adherence that they will maintain suppression indefinitely, which is extraordinary. So that is my choice number three. Just not with three nucleoside analog <laughs> reverse transcriptase was, inhibitors, That Paul. was a terrible choice. It was not a terrible choice. It was choice. a terrible choice. Anyway, so that is a little bit of ancient history, but I think it's an important one to go back and just explain how exciting that was and why that Vancouver meeting was really so dynamite. I also would like to make the observation that you're proceeding chronologically, which is very admirable. Well, I'm kind of a scholar here. <laughs> <laughs> um, th I believe that was a pot shot. <laughs> All right. Choice number four for Dr. Rafi Landovitz coming right up. Okay. Again, I'm going to be a little bit predictable okay. here. Okay. Good. Okay. I'm going to choose the PROUD study. Okay. Another PrEP study. It is, but there's a method to this madness. Okay. So good. go with it. Sheena McCormick in Lancet 2016. In the wake of IPREX and all the subset analyses, and of course IPREX had an open-label extension study that, that demonstrated high levels of protective efficacy against rectal exposures to HIV, but there was still a swirling controversy about whether TDF-FTC PrEP could be protective vaginally and what level of adherence it would need to be taken at in order to get vaginal protection. There needed to be sort of a follow-up randomized study without placebos to support the original MSM data from IPREX. And Sheena and, and the group at MRC in the UK did this very interesting study, and, and they did it in STD and primary care clinics, and they randomized at-risk MSM to immediate daily TDF, FTC, or, or deferred treatment with just sort of standard of care prevention services. And I always thought that was particularly British, that, <laughs> that you would have a waiting list to get something. I think the NHS is a great service, and the people who are in Britain love it, but they complain about it. And one of the things they complain about is wait lists. Yes, this is actually very consistent with sort of the standard <laughs> in such managed medical environments. But the study was stopped early because of an extraordinary finding, 86% reduction in HIV incidence in those who were randomized to the immediate pre-exposure prophylaxis arm as opposed to those who were on the wait list to get their deferred initiation of therapy. And there were high rates of sexually transmitted infections in this study. And although there were a relatively small number of infections uh, with HIV overall, they were able to have this dramatic and statistically significant result. Yeah. It really raised the bar and demonstrated the power of this intervention and really advanced the field tremendously. Oh, I totally agree. The presentation of the PROUD study and in the same session, the presentation of the Ypergay study. study really showed that this PrEP thing could work very well indeed. And it was only after those two studies that you really took off. Before that, it was kind of a, a lukewarm adaptation. I'm going to disagree with you. If you actually look at the new PrEP start data from a variety of databases, it was actually in the third quarter of 2014. That's ah, the inflection point okay. in new PrEP starts. And this was in February of 2015. Well, I stand corrected. And you know what? That's why we have these podcasts, so we can all learn something. Thank you for teaching me something important about <laughs> HIV prevention. Well, on to my fourth choice. And I'm going to choose Palella et al., Declining Morbidity and Mortality Among Patients with Advanced HIV Infection, New England Journal of Medicine, 1998. Now, this was an observational study 
of the effect of antiretroviral therapy, including protease inhibitors, so it was triple therapy predominantly, in people with advanced HIV disease. So they had to be people with HIV receiving care at HIV outpatient cohort sites with a CD4 cell count less than 100, 1,200 patients or so. And what they demonstrated was this almost immediate, amazing drop in deaths correlating exactly with the rise in the use of protease inhibitors. And it led to the most widely used figure in all HIV teaching slides for the next decade or so, a figure showing this X sign where the deaths drop and at the same time the protease inhibitors rise. And I've been calling that a parallelogram. It's not a parallelogram, <laughs> but it's a parallelogram ever since. And it's, empl it's emblazoned on the retinas of every HIV and ID specialist because it was such a fabulous demonstration of the miraculous effect of ART on our sickest patients. Good use of observational databases. And it was a, a collaboration with the CDC. I love that diagram. I think it codified findings from your previous choice yeah. in a clinical outcomes way that was transformative yeah. for the field. Before we move on, they also showed that the opportunistic infections declined at the same time without any increased use of prophylaxis, which is what has led me to hammer home to our residents and our fellows that opportunistic infection prophylaxis is a marginally effective strategy when it comes to improving the health of a person with advanced HIV disease. By all means, ART is the top priority, so that's what we should focus on. That is an outstanding clinical pearl. Okay, choice number five, Dr. Landovitz, you're up. Okay, so to understand this final choice of a paper that I love, one needs to be able to see into the future. Okay. And that is because you have already shared with me that after you and I have each picked our five favorite papers, yes. we're going to pick our least favorite paper. Correct. And so this favorite paper, number five of mine, I love so much really only in the context of the paper that I hate the most. Okay. <laughs> um, so it, it may not be immediately clear why this is such a gem, but I hope it is. Okay, Paul. sure. Um, and by the way, you're going to get a chance to say a few of the studies very quickly, like lightning round, that you didn't get to choose because okay. we only have so much time. Because I do have a list. Okay. <laughs> Sam Janess from the CDC mm -hmm. published a modeling paper in 2017 in Clinical Infectious Diseases, mm -hmm. a journal known as CID, not <laughs> to be confused with OFID, and Thank no you. one calls it SID. Right, so there so you no go. So no one should call it OFID. <laughs> Thank you. Right? Thank you, yes. Just, just being clear, there's this ecological observation that rates of bacterial STIs are increasing and that we are at an epidemic level, and this is, of course, an enormous public health concern, particularly among MSM. And many people have, again, ecologically attributed this to pre-exposure prophylaxis mm -hmm. use. And this model is incredibly elegant at looking at the question of what should happen to population level STI incidence rates if quarterly testing and then referral for treatment for positives is implemented as part of pre-exposure prophylaxis services even given a potential decrease in condom use mm -hmm. among people who might be taking PrEP. This model demonstrates quite elegantly that we really could dramatically impact reductions on bacterial STI incidence if we do this quarterly uh, STI testing of all potentially exposed orifices and immediate referral treatment, essentially 
interrupting the transmission cycle at a much earlier time point than would otherwise have been done had they been either tested every six months or annually or waited until they were symptomatic. Mm -hmm. Because of course the majority of these STIs are asymptomatic and probably go on to onward transmission horizontally before they are detected. So I love okay. this model. Now you are a bit of a numbers geek. Yes. And that is proven by this last choice. <laughs> and I'm sure it also correlates with your area of research interest perfectly. And so I'm going to grant you that one, even though I wouldn't have chosen it in a million years. But I am now going to choose my paper number five, which is a prevention study. What? Yep. And it is going is it to be Connor et al. Reduction in Maternal Infant Transmission of HIV Type 1 with Zidovidine Treatment in New England Journal of Medicine 1994. This is, of course, the 076 study that showed that if you give moms with HIV AZT, they are going to transmit the virus to their newborns much less commonly. It was 26% in the control arm, 8% in the zidovanine arm. And this was really an amazing thing because if you think about that time in HIV medicine, we were in this period of real kind of depression about how effective our HIV treatments were because there was the Concord study, which raised the question, did AZT even work? And there were all these toxicities. This was the peak death rate for HIV in the United States. And along comes this study, which gives us this glimmer of hope that if you treat the moms, even if they're asymptomatic, their babies wouldn't get HIV. And of course, now we know that if you treat the moms with suppressive ART, their babies never get HIV. It really did change the landscape. One of the ironies is that even though it was in 1994, so 25 years ago, we still don't know the safest things to give the moms. And I've been really privileged to be involved in a clinical trial that's ongoing right now, looking at that very question with my colleague, Shaheen Lachman. So that's choice number five for me. Parenthetically, I adore Shaheen Lachman. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to say that that is a brilliant choice. And I agree with you that that was transformative. It's on my list as well. Okay, good. So and, now, and, yeah. rapid fire. The papers that you didn't get a chance to choose, uh, I'll give you a few. Go ahead, Rafi. Okay. Quick, uh, quick. The START study. Start everyone who's HIV infected on antiretroviral therapy as soon as you can, as soon as they're ready. Right. Amazing because everybody in that study was healthy, yeah. healthy with HIV, high T cells. All the people we used to say, you don't need treatment. Now we treat them, everyone. Okay, what else? The SMART study. Mm. Again, looking at a strategy of continuous antiretroviral therapy administration or a cyclic on and off study between 250 and 350 yeah, yeah. CD4 cells. And I, I thought that was so powerful, not so much for its primary results, which I think a lot of people anticipated, but more the notion of the inflammatory and end-organ disease complications mm. of stopping therapy. That opened up a whole paradigm of our understanding of the consequences of viremia. Well, absolutely. In hindsight, it's not surprising. And I almost put it on my list, but then I thought intermittent therapy is so old school, who cares? But I, I think it's a good choice and your point is well taken. One last runner-up that didn't make it. Okay, one last runner-up, and this is not an attempt to brown nose. <laughs> ACTG 5202 by this Yahoo from Boston named <laughs> Paul Sachs, New England Journal of Medicine, 2009. And this was the nucleoside comparison. That was a factorially designed study, uh, antiretroviral naive people living with HIV 
HIV uh, treated with either TDF-FTC or a Bacavir 3TC and either ritonavir boosted atazanavir or efavirenz and followed for virologic outcomes and a number of really interesting sub-studies. But the nucleoside comparison right, stopped early because of an increase of virologic failure in the Abacavir 3TC arm in participants who had a baseline viral load greater than 100,000 copies per mil. Well, thanks for choosing it, Rafi. And you know, you express the results very clearly. Let me tell you how the statisticians express the results at our DSMB <laughs> meeting. We asked them, well, did we meet some sort of stopping rule criterion? And they said, nope. Sometimes when you look at a Kaplan-Meier figure, it just hits you right between the eyes. And I thought, only a statistician could say that because <laughs> they saw this excess virologic failures in the back of your 3TC arm, and, and that ended up stopping that arm, that part of the study in the high viral load stratum. So thanks. So quickly, the ones that I chose that we didn't get to cover, uh, one I chose was Mellers et al., prognosis in HIV infection predicted by the quantity of virus in plasma, science 1996, the first demonstration that measuring HIV amount in the blood was prognostic. And the reason why this was such a great paper is it's like the ultimate translational science paper. It's a laboratory technique that at the time was very high tech. Quantitative PCR and related methods at the time were very cutting edge. Never and, gonna be clinically available, don't and, you know that? Uh, exactly, <laughs> and then applying it to this cohort from the multicenter AIDS cohort study, a brilliant study, obviously transformed how we assess people with HIV. That was one. Another one was Yazdanpana, high rates of virologic suppression with raltegravir plus etravirine and darunavir-ritonavir among treatment experienced patients infected with multidrug resistant HIV. Results of the ANRS 139 TRIO study, CID 2009. Yazdan is a, a colleague of mine in the CPAC group. He's a brilliant clinician, brilliant clinical researcher. And what he showed here was that patients with the worst drug resistance could achieve viral suppression at a rate that was comparable to treatment-naive patients. 86% virologic suppression. And it really was the new era of HIV treatment ushered in by these drugs. Raltegravir in particular, but also darunavir and etravirine. Now we could suppress almost everyone. And then my last choice for transformative papers is going to be one of the first ones that came out demonstrating that there was comparable survival for people with HIV as the general population. This was a study in JAMA in 2008. Bhaskaran et al. changes in risk of death after HIV seroconversion compared with mortality in the general population. And let me just quote from the paper. I remember reading it and thinking, oh my goodness. And it was mortality rates for HIV infected persons have become much closer to general mortality rates since the introduction of antiretroviral therapy. Now there have been innumerable papers that show the same thing. Hooray. Okay, we're done with our top choices. Now let's talk about some that are our least favorite. We're going to do one each. Go ahead. I gave my hand away a little bit already in talking about my fifth choice for a favorite paper, but there's a series of papers that attempt to imply causality of PrEP use with the current STI epidemic. And they all have methodologic characteristics that make them imperfect. It's really the somewhat politicized spin mm -hmm. around them that I really just find so bothersome. It comes down to jealousy. The STI <laughs> prevention people are jealous that we have a highly effective HIV prevention biomedical strategy. So are you implying that there's actual competition among people in various research fields? I'm shocked. I know, unthinkable. <laughs> 
No one would ever say that academic research is a snake pit. Now, when I said least favorite, I didn't really specify whether you didn't like the findings or the way it was spun or what. I'm going to share with you papers that when they came out, I just didn't like the results. Not that I in any way question the methods. I think the methods are brilliant. And I'm going to cite Finzi et al. T-cells provide a mechanism for a lifelong persistence of HIV even in patients on effective combination therapy, Nature Medicine, 1999. It basically demonstrated that despite years of suppressive antiretroviral therapy, that viral reservoir wasn't going anywhere. We've all seen that figure from that paper many times, the quote, decay of the viral reservoir, which essentially is pretty much a flat line. It really shows us that we're not going to cure this with standard antiretroviral therapy. So that was my choice of a least favorite because at the time, believe it or not, we were so flush with success with triple therapy that there were actually studies thinking, you know, maybe if we got people early enough and treated them long enough, they'd be cured. We now know that's not the case. All right, Rafi, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really fun discussion. We today drafted our five favorite papers in HIV research, and I've been talking with Dr. Rafael Landovitz from UCLA Medical Center. Thanks for joining us.